0: Welcome to Deeper Levels, a podcast about pathology, medicine, and science mostly. Today it is my pleasure to welcome a very special guest and former trainee, Dr. Marissa J. White. Dr. White grew up in Maryland and attended undergraduate at the University of Richmond. She then earned her MD from Morehouse School of Medicine in Atlanta, Georgia. She completed APCP residency and a surgical pathology fellowship at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. She is now an assistant professor of pathology at Johns Hopkins Hospital and a consultant on the Breast Pathology Consultation Service. She is also involved in and an emerging leader in pathology education and is the co-director of the Department of Pathology Education Advisory Committee. Her research focuses in part on improving diversity, equity, and inclusion in pathology. Dr. White, thank you so much for joining me. How are you today?
1: Good. How are you? Thank you so much, Natalie. It's really nice to speak with you again. You know, you were one of the first pathologists that I met uh, outside of Morehouse uh, when I was a medical student. So it's really wonderful to be working with you um, in a professional capacity now. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I, yeah, I get the warm and fuzzies when I think about you. (laughs) I just, I just remember you, we'll we'll talk about that in a little bit, but just like Mm -hmm. my heart just warms up when I think about our first interactions together. And now you're just like a fully fledged academic pathologist, just like me. So it's it's awesome. Um, You and I talked offline before recording about how to address the current situation in our country, sparred by the most recent, and I think egregious, killing of an unarmed black man by police, which was captured on film. While ignoring the situation completely is impractical, we also agreed that offering our viewpoints in a vacuum in this format did not feel entirely right. Many organizations, including hospitals and academic systems, are not only speaking out in support, but also offering solutions and finding ways to further change. For the listeners who want to know more about how the medical and, more specifically, the pathology community is responding, we have provided representative policy statements from medical organizations, including the American Medical Association, the National Medical Association, the American Society for Clinical Pathology, the American Board of Pathology, and Johns Hopkins. These are in the show notes for review. Uh, Would you like to add anything to that, Dr. White? Yeah, I
1: I agree. I mean, I think this is such a broad and extensive conversation, and I don't think that this is the right format to um, talk about, you know, how we can really implement change. Um, But what I would like to add at this is just more than just now, Um, as Mm -hmm. the National Medical Association or the NMA um, poignantly poignantly notes, um, black people are are three times more likely to be killed by police in the United States than white people. Um, keeping in mind that you know Black people only comprise about 13 to 14 percent of the U.S. population, mm-hmm. um, and even though our public spaces are you know are no longer segregated, there's still longstanding systemic racism and equity um, trickling down to our youngest children um, mm-hmm. and in underfunded schools that now don't have access to meals or technology uh, to engage in social in, uh, distance learning now that COVID-19 has shut down the school system. So um, I think you know one part of the conversation is you know obviously uh the racial injustice and um police police brutality but then the other part of the conversation is a systemic racism and inequity um that you know the killings have brought to light but also COVID 19 as well um mm-hmm. and i like to highlight that the ama's response is deeper than what it might appear Mm-hmm. Um, at face value, um, the AMA, uh, for those, for the listeners you might not be familiar with, um, the AMA, uh, although it never formally disallowed black members uh, and it, to join, it only, it allowed their state affiliates to do so. Um, and in order to be a member of the AMA, you had to be a member of your state affiliate medical society. So if, you know, you were in a southern state and your state's medical society didn't allow you to join, then you couldn't by default join the AMA. Um, So by default, many black physicians um, were overtly excluded from AMA membership up through the 1960s. Um, And in fact, in 2008, the AMA actually released an official apology, um, which is available in an editorial in the Journal of the American Medical Association, um, uh, explaining what happened and how they're moving forward to correct that injustice. Um, And the National Medical Association, or the NMA, was founded. in because black physicians were not allowed to join the AMA. Um, so the statement from the AMA is more important um, than what it appears. And all yeah. this to say, I think what matters now is what happens next. Um, you know, this is, as you noted, this is ongoing. This is not mm-hmm. the first time um, mm-hmm. black individuals have been killed. Um, mm-hmm. And what, you know, we all, there's always this response. And then what happens is that it settles and then nothing really changes. So yeah. the question is what's going to happen this time? What will be different this time? Um, what will things look like for my three-year-old? Um, will I have to teach him how to be careful when driving or hang out with his friends? Will I have to tell him you know, how to be careful with expressing himself or what clothes he wears? Um, so that's really mm-hmm. the critical question is how do we continue um, to use this momentum to affect real change and not just uh, let this be a, you know, a fad for lack of better words.
0: Yeah. Uh, or, a, yeah, like a flash in the pan. I, um, the American Medical Association statement was very interesting to me because they not only commented on, you know, just wholeheartedly saying this is unacceptable, what happened was unacceptable, but they also talk about underlying health disparities yeah. and um, how these policies of marginization and lack of access lead to adverse health outcomes in these populations of people. So um, you're right. It it doesn't, it's not just police brutality, it's schools, it's neighborhoods, it's access to, you know, healthy foods. It's, it just touches every single thing. And I think, um, you know, I had this conversation with, we were talking, I was talking about um, healthcare disparities in pregnant women, which is sort of near and dear to my heart as I feel like after you're pregnant, you can never hear a story about someone who's pregnant having an adverse outcome without your skin crawling. I mean, I think it's impossible to do that. And uh, I think the hardest thing for people who have privilege, like myself, and for people who don't know either one of us, I am a white American, you are a black American. So um, I don't know that that would be obvious to people who don't know us. (laughs) Um, uh, And it's hard for people who come from a place of privilege to sit down and look in the mirror and say, you know, if I was born in a different neighborhood or if I look differently, I might not have the things I have. I might not be the person I am. I like to believe that my effort got me where I am, but I don't think that's, I don't think I can say that with a straight face. Does that make sense? So I I hope that this time, and I, I want to believe that this is different and I think everyone wants to believe that this is different, but I can understand that the, you know, underserved communities in our country are kind of tired of hearing that. So
1: yeah
0: um but uh for now um it does at least feel different um i don't remember another time when there were this many people out speaking their mind um but yeah. i i suppose we'll see and um yeah so deep breath anything else you want to add before we move on to the other sort of related but not no, quite this topic i, mean, I think
1: yeah. i think the <laughs> I do think that the conversation is a little bit different now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I am hopeful that things, that the response will be more, there'll be a more durable response this time um, Mm -hmm. and things will start to change. But, um, you know, like you mentioned, I mean, certainly privilege is, you know, very real. I mean, this is, you know, I'm, I probably shouldn't get my age, but uh, this is the first time in my life um, that. (laughs) You're a baby. as, yeah. a, as a black woman, mm-hmm. um, as a black woman that I've, that I've worn my hair natural and that was strategic because when I was in college, I was thinking long-term, you know, I wanted to go to medical school. And at that time, you know, it wasn't, you weren't seeing as many black women wearing their natural hair, um, mm-hmm. you know, braids. And then certainly, you know, I had to think critically about getting my hair braided. So little things like that. I mean, mm-hmm uh, certainly, um, make things challenging. Um, and that's just, you know, on the superficial most level, um, obviously it gets, it gets much more serious than that, but, you know, even, even for the tiniest things, you know, how do I do my hair? How do I dress?
0: Um, How do you talk? How do you present yourself to people? I mean, the pressure to be pleasing, I'm sure is, you know, sort of a death by a thousand cuts kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, we'll choose to have at least a modicum of hope for the moment. Okay, Um, I think that you and I met for the first time. We've alluded to this. I I want to get this right. I visited Johns Hopkins on some sort of stipend thing when I was a resident, and I was a third year resident. But I was at North Carolina. I was visiting for a month. I'm pretty sure that's when I met you, and you were a medical student, and you had come from Morehouse. To do a month long rotation at Hopkins, is that right? In GYN? Were you only in GYN? Yeah, so it's a crazy oh, story. Yeah. So I. So we, <laughs> yeah, we were like two ships in the night, right? Because neither one of us really belonged thought,
1: there. You weren't a nine <laughs> fellow at the time? I don't think this so. Was, this was in 2000, this would have been in 2012.
0: Oh, maybe I was a guy. So I was a fellow from 2012 to 2014. So I probably was a yeah. guy and fellow. Okay. I yeah. was wondering, okay, so I was a GYN fellow, but I m- I must've been brand new or something. Cause yeah. I remember I barely yeah. knew what was, you know, like where the scalpels Which were. Was a, to, right, right, navigate, right. Exactly. Navigate, uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you came in as a, as a medical, medical student sort yeah. of to try to see if it was a place you wanted to come for residency. Well, no,
1: so it was yeah. deeper than that. Okay. So, So I went to Morehouse School of Medicine, um, for those who might not be familiar, is a historically black medical school. It's one of the newer ones. So there there are three. So there's Morehouse School of Medicine, Howard College of Medicine, and Meharry College Mm -hmm. of Medicine. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Um, Howard and Meharry are the two oldest. Um, Morehouse was opened in 1970, around
0: 1975.
1: Um, And they're in Atlanta, Georgia. They're not affiliated with the undergraduate college. Um, Many individuals might be familiar with Morehouse college the undergraduate um that's for men only whereas hmm. the S- school of medicine is um is for all genders hmm. um so at morehouse there are a lot of um african-american faculty um that were very we have uh they're, they're quite prominent in medicine um for the for within the african-american community and one of those individuals was dr roland patillo um and for your readers who you might or for your listeners you might have um I guess, listen, read the uh, book about Henrietta Lacks, Dr. Patillo was actually one of the fellows uh, that works in a lab that um, initially uh, started the cell culture line. Hmm. Um, and he, at the time, was one of the individuals that uh, followed up with the family once they realized that her cells were being used without her permission or without her, her family's permission. Um, wow. And he ended up putting a grave on her, uh, putting a grave marker on her grave uh, many years later um, because she was actually buried in an unmarked grave. Um, So Dr. Petillo is is quite um, prominent in uh, the African-American physician community. And there's actually a conference every year um, that honors kind of his legacy um, and the legacy of Henrietta Lacks. Uh, but all I have to say, Dr. Patilla was one of my OBGYN attendings. And I was interested in pathology, um, but with that in mind, and I went to Morehouse because Morehouse uh, is was established to help train physicians that were going to um, fight against health disparities. Um, so the focus, in part, was on, you know, primary care, which is what I was interested in. But I really love pathology. Dr. Marjorie Smith was one of our um, phenomenal pathologists, but she didn't have a clinical service. So I was sharing my interest in pathology with Dr. Patillo, And he said, Oh, I know Bob Kerman up at Hopkins. <laughs> okay.
0: Perfect. Yeah. yeah. So
1: Dr. Patillo put me in touch with Dr. Kerman. And then I said, Kay, hey, can I do a rotation? And he said, sure. And then I actually met with him, um, when I was back home over winter break, and he was very gracious and very kind. Um, And then I ended up setting up a rotation later on. So it was more so, I I had no idea how to get my foot in the door in pathology. And it was that uh, serenipitous conversation with Dr. Patillo that um, got me this opportunity. Ironically, you know, I went to the sign-out room um, at Grady Memorial Hospital and I think they I think they were quite puzzled to see you know a random medical student walk into the sign out room and uh-huh. kind of walked back
0: out and never went back. <laughs> so oh, that's not good. I don't like <laughs> to hear that. It's so hard, though, to get medical students involved in pathology. Yeah. i was um I was listening to your grand rounds talk and you talked about how they've gone to this more systems based learning model. Yeah, and you know the reason I love pathology is because, well, I was a phlebotomist, so I always knew what I didn't pathologists, know that. yeah that's how I worked through college, oh, yes. drawing oh, blood, wow. um, been called a vampire more times than I can count. But, um, <laughs> I always knew who the pathologists were. I used to watch autopsies with them when they would very infrequently have them because I worked in a community hospital. So I knew what they were. I knew more about clinical pathology. And then, um, you know, I had pathologies, uh, instructors in medical school and I was with them all the time. And I remember, the woman who inspired me to become a pathologist was this Mm -hmm. dynamic lecturer, and she was kind of profane, which is a okay with me. And she was like (laughs) very lively. And I remember her talking about cervical cytology and she was like so excited about it, you know, but I I don't, I don't know if medical students get that anymore. So I know you're working on that. We'll talk about that later, but, um, so uh, that's a interesting, so you ended up at Johns Hopkins for residency and then stayed there for the faculty. Do you have any other biographical stuff you'd like to add? Or do you feel like we've been brought up to speed? I mean, I read all the CV stuff, but do you, do you <laughs> no, have anything else? I mean,
1: it yeah. was partly strategic. I mean, I'm from Maryland and mm-hmm. I, my first, no, I'm lying. My, my, so I did a, my first real paid summer job was here, um, in the, through a, through a Hopkins summer job program. Uh-huh. Um, worked out in the emergency room and billing. And so, um, you know, I'm from here. I, you know, grew up doing lots of programs here in high school. So it was, it was kind of a, a full circle to end up um, getting a position here on faculty. So.
0: Yeah. And the fact that you were involved in programs that they were doing with outreach is right. also very um, self-fulfilling. That's lovely. Yeah. So um, I'd like to start Um, by talking a little bit about Abraham Flexner, which might not be on the tip of everyone's tongue, but it kicks off a good discussion about medical education. And um, you talk about this in in the lecture that you give about inclusion and diversity. And it just so happens that he has a connection to both you and I, because I went to medical school at the University of Louisville in Kentucky, and it is on Abraham Flexner way because he is a a native Louisvillian. And, of course, everybody still talks about him there. I don't know that he spent most of his medical career there. Yeah. Um, I don't know that. But I know that he also went to Johns Hopkins at the time for an undergraduate. So can you tell me about the his um, self-named report um, that he <laughs> issued and how it impacted medical education, especially in regards to educating women and underrepresented populations?
1: Yeah. So this was – so I don't even know – I don't know where I, why I ended up reading the Flexner report. Um, mm-hmm. I know that there have been public I know that there are publications um, by Dr. Lewis Sullivan about, uh, you know, the impact of the Flexner report. But I don't mm-hmm. know what prompted me to even look into this. But as a resident, um our residents here at Hopkins give, you know, a small, uh, short five-minute grand round talk, and I mm-hmm. decided to give mine on the Flexner report, and. I read through the beginning of it, which which consists of um, a couple of different chapters that address different aspects of medical education, and I found that chapters 13 and 14 specifically uh, were entitled The Medical Education of Women and The Medical Education of the Negro. Um, and so I think, you know, certainly Abraham Flexner was a champion for uh, standardizing medical education. Um, but I think it w- what was challenging was that this was written in, you know, the Plessy versus Ferguson climate, where mm-hmm. institutions were overtly segregated um, and excluded African Americans. Um, Native Americans, anyone that was, you know, a minority at that time, was overtly excluded. Women as well, um, and I think the implications were that even though I think his intentions were good, where he was outlining, you know, which schools could adequately educate um, medical students um, using an evidence-based um, curriculum, I think the challenge is that, you know. Inadvertently, most of the medical women's colleges and five of the seven African-American medical colleges were closed. Um, You know, so while they were not adequately equipped to educate those student groups, this was, again, the Plessy versus Ferguson climate where um, those individuals now had even fewer opportunities to uh, gain education
0: and then... um, and Plessy versus Ferguson, just in case people. Oh are not yeah, reciproc- upheld the
1: constitution. Yeah, upheld the constitutionality of um, segregate racial segregation.
0: Like separate States. but equal, basically. Yeah, but, okay. Separate. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Go ahead.
1: Um, but yeah, but you know, not only did it restrict the opportunities for um, women, African Americans, Native Americans to get medical educations, but then also uh, reduced the community's access to physicians in within their community that Um, looked like, that looked like them. Well, no, not beyond that, where you had overtly. So you had overtly segregated hospitals. You had overtly segregated Mm -hmm. um, medical clinics, um, Mm -hmm. you know, with obviously not equal facilities or resources or resources. Right. Um, And so at that time, you know, having an African-American physician, in the African-American community was critical because black people couldn't go to a white clinic. So it reduced access to healthcare care um, across the board. And then the other interesting thing um, is that for both women and African Americans, um, Fluxner kind of outlined uh, some soft-ish uh, language that kind of narrowed the scope of practice for women and african-americans. So, you know He said for women they have an assured place in medicine and that was kind of alluded to beating pediatrics ob Um And then for african-americans he outright said that, you know, they should focus on um, Hygiene um, so mostly primary care and then again, you know that limits uh, the, the access to medical specialty care where You know, my oncology probably wasn't that prevalent of a practice back then. But if you were an African-American, you certainly weren't going to be able to find an oncologist to treat you.
0: Right. 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 right, Which is is sort of the whole point of um, uh, the Henrietta Lacks book. Uh, Right. Right. Um, So uh, it seems to me that one thing everyone is realizing now is that in order to make things better for who those people and populations who have not traditionally held power that underrepresented groups need to have a seat at the table. There's that famous picture of, um, the people deciding about, uh, birth control regulation under the (laughs) affordable care act. And it's just like all white men, there's not a woman in the room and you just think, okay. Um, I'd like to talk about the demographics of medicine these days. Um, we can start with medical schools. What are medical schools looking like these days? I know you have this in your presentation as well. You don't have to give like percentages, but just overall trends. How's it looking?
1: So it's interesting. I mean, it, so it's it's improving, but I think we have to be careful um, with you know how we're looking at the data. Mm-hmm. Um, so the first thing is that you know certainly the number of app applications applications or applicants um, from students underrepresented in medicine, which is the preferred uh, terminology now um, recommended by the, by the AMA Um, and just to kind of take a step back. So um, historically, we historically, we've used the term underrepresented minority um, Mm -hmm. and that's historically referred to um, Hispanic or Latinx, um, Native American, um, Alaskan native Pacific Islander, um, Native Hawaiian, uh, African-American or black. we've shifted now to use the term U, UIM or underrepresented in medicine. Um, mm-hmm. So while technically, and, and that means, you know, they're individuals or from groups that are underrepresented in medicine relative to their proportions in the US population. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so at this time, you know, individuals, individuals that are underrepresented or previously categorized as URM are still UIM. It's the same thing. Um, right. But moving forward, I mean, it, it, it's, a, it's a bit more of an optim, optimistic term because it allows for evolution of who is, you know, included in that UIM focus and who can be, um, you know, kind of who can get less of a focus. Um, it's
0: like coming off the endangered species. List right. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. It's a broader term that you can hopefully uh, yeah. shift certain, certain communities out off right. that list and yeah. allow others maybe to even come on it if, if one would need to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So,
1: so while the number of applicants from groups UIM um, have have been increasing, we're not seeing a concordant increase in the number of acceptances. And then the other issue is that you're not seeing a concordant number of um, graduates. So, right. you know, if you're really seeing real change, you would expect everyone everything to be increasing at the same rate. Um, Higher number of applicants, higher number of acceptance, higher number of matriculants, higher number of graduates. But what we're seeing is higher number of applicants and then attrition, Um, attrition Mm -hmm. from applicant to acceptance, from acceptance to matriculant, from matriculant to graduate. So Mm -hmm. there's still there's still significant issues with retention. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we need to do a better job in sorting out the. challenges that students UIM are facing on this pipeline or pathway into medicine, um, where there's attrition at every step. Um, keeping in mind that a pipeline is, you know, a linear term. And, um, that's probably that's certainly not the most inclusive or equitable term because not everyone's pathway into medicine is a linear pathway.
0: But yeah. So, And, and I know, I know that the reasons for the different, uh, Sort of step-offs along the way are probably myriad there's probably like you know you could talk about that for three hours right but one has to imagine as someone you and i have both made it through undergraduate medical school residency fellowship now attending in academics if you don't have support from um not just family but friends if you don't have a good support network um, it's pretty hard to work while you're in school. So if you don't have some kind of financial support, that would also be a a good reason to stop, I would think. And also the, um, mental toll that it takes on someone to do. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to hang myself out here as a martyr or something, but it, it's, it's hard work and it's, it's mentally exhausting a lot of the time to have something to fall back on like a good support system. Um, you imagine like some of these communities might not have that. So I think it's going to be a, it's an important problem to solve. It's going to be a hard problem to solve. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. 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 Um, so, uh, you talked in your grand rounds about an argument for diversity. Part of it was financial, which I loved. Um, can you (laughs) recap that for me here? So great. It yeah. was such a good talk, by the way. I listened to it like more than one time. But.
1: Thanks. I think I was speaking a mile a minute. It's so funny to, you know, now that we're transitioning to this online format, it's it's so mm-hmm. challenging because you're not, you know, you don't have those visual cues to slow you down. So
0: Oh, I know. And there's no, you're just talking into your computer screen. I've given a couple of virtual grand rounds and I'm like, could some, could just one of you show me your face? So I have any idea if you're even there? Because I'm stuck my computer. Anyway, I'm sorry. Go ahead. So you're arguing about diversity. Yeah. Um, so if yeah. I mean
1: if, if if you you know even for the most biased you know the explicitly biased individual, um, diversity saves money. Um, you know they did. So you know it's really wonderful how much is going on in the business sector. Um, and they've done you know formal analysis of you know top top businesses and found that those that are more diverse um, both gender and racial ethnicity ethnically diverse um, outperform financially those groups that are um, those businesses that are not diverse um, but outside of that i think you know that there are obvious reasons you know in primary care or in patient directing um, patient directing, I guess, specialties. Um, it's well established in the medical literature that you have improved uh, communication when you have patient-provider concordant relationships or um, just providers that can provide culturally appropriate and patient-centered care. Um, mm-hmm. You know, how you approach a you know, conversation with a patient. You know, as you all learn, as we've learned in medical school, uh, can look very different uh, depending on the socioeconomic, racial, ethnic backgrounds, cultural backgrounds of who your of who you're, your patient, who you're working with. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's well established that you have higher quality care. So it's really it's really interesting um, in internal medicine literature. They found that um, more diverse cardiology teams were able to provide better care um, for their patients. Um, certainly that, you know, the elephant in the room um, is, you know, when you have more diversity, you have, um, you know, increased awareness and emphasis on health disparities. And that's really what we are trying to do, um, increase health equity across the board. And I think it's challenging for us in pathology to remember that um, because we yeah. aren't seeing our patients. Um, right. You know, I, I, I went to Morehouse and, you know, w- we trained at Grady, and Grady serves, you know, the greater Atlanta community, and it was a privilege to serve such an underserved community. Um, I think it's very challenging to um, take to to remember to take your blinders off as a pathologist, and especially, you know, if you're in a large urban center, to remember who you're caring for and how you can use your research to help those patients. Um, right. I think the other right. thing is, you know, for at academic places, at academic at, at academic institutions. Um, you know, a lot of pathologists can be involved with clinical trials. Um, and I think that's, you know, so important for us as pathologists to kind of take a step back and make sure that, you know, our oncology colleagues are doing their best to make sure that their clinical trial um, cohorts are diverse. Um, they're well-established, long-standing um, disparities in representation and clinical trial enrollment, and that only yeah. exacerbates cancer health disparities.
0: So. Right. And then, you know, from a... a to tie it into academics also if you only have a certain kind of people. Because, you know, in pathology it might be tempting to say, well, I don't see patients. I don't I, I see slides. I don't know right. what the people look like that the slides come from. I yeah. mean, maybe I could stipulate that. But if you're involved in a place where you're guiding research funding or um, a lot of times, uh, you know, for someone like me, I do translational research, so it's not like I'm dealing with NIH grants. But I'm deciding what questions to ask. You know yeah. i'm deciding what to look into i'm deciding what to spend my time on and people from diverse backgrounds have other questions they have questions that i don't know about so yeah. i think it's it's just like even from a like a airplane view mm-hmm. just looking at it from a bigger perspective it's important to have people with different backgrounds people yeah. from different you know um groups asking different questions and, that, and i think that medicine would look a whole lot different if, for example, you know, more women were in charge, more people yeah. of um, underrepresented groups were in charge. So um, we you talked a little bit about the pipeline before. Um, as people who want to make things better are thinking about ways they can help, um, I one way that I think is you talk about education, you know, steps before um, even undergraduate, not just medical school, but to recruit people into pathology to diversify the field and that the term pipeline can be slightly misleading. Will you expand upon why that can be misleading and how, like how many steps before someone becomes a pathologist do you think you need to go back to reach out to people?
1: Yeah, I think so it, it's that, so, so the start, so so again, the pipeline is, you know, the pathway, um, into medicine that culminates in an individual you know realizing their fullest potential whether it be you know private practice or an industry or academia you know whatever that individual wants to do what their you know long-term goal um that pipeline is through the pathway is you know the steps that that individual needs to accomplish you know needs to um, accomplish in order to achieve their ultimate you know career goals um it is misleading because you know it implies, as I mentioned before, a linear pathway. And we're not—we all know that you know not everyone has a linear pathway into medicine. People take years off. They have families. Um, you know, family challenges can happen. Um, medical school and residency are quite expensive. Um, individuals might work for some time. When we think about our laboratory professional community, I mean, we have every year we have a handful of individuals applying to residency that have a background in laboratory medicine and were laboratory mm-hmm. professionals like you uh, before they came into medical school um certainly not a linear pathway when you think about you know an individual that goes to college undergraduates immediately matriculates into medical school immediately matriculates into residency
0: right right right. Um,
1: i think at every node there, their challenges i mean thinking about my personal journey um when I was in college, I, you know, this is me like sharing my, you know, personal experience, but when I was in college, I was encouraged to just take a year off um, and to kind of hold off and apply later on or consider going to um, a Caribbean medical school. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, part of this was just, you know, being young and I don't know, I, I wouldn't say hard headed, but, you know, persevering. I just, you know, decided just to apply anyway. And, mm-hmm um, they ended up choosing to go to Morehouse because I felt that that was the right choice for me. And, um, you know, so for me that might, I could have been lost on that pipeline at that point. Um, when that, when I was told just, you know, to take a year off and hope, you know, put things on ice and apply later on, I could have, you know, taken a year off and then gotten a job and realized that I loved it and never gone on to medicine. Mm -hmm. Um, when I think about, um, you know, applying to residency, um, you know it's expensive um it's well established in the literature that it that the residency application process is biased against individuals from um lower socioeconomic backgrounds Mm -hmm. it can be quite expensive especially when you think about the debut electives the traveling for residency of course you know things will look different now that we're in a you know a covid time but um pre-covid it can get pretty expensive, I think, and certainly in the in the medical, in um, the more competitive specialties, like otolaryngology or dermatology or plastics, you right. know, students are spending upwards of, you know, $6,000 um, to apply for medicine, I mean, to apply for residency, all things combined. So that's another pathway where you can, or not another opportunity where you can lose someone um, underrepresented in medicine to a medical specialty that's really, you know, a, a procedural-based specialty. Um, you have people right. that are thinking critically about how much debt they have and end up going into primary care because they want loan, you know, they want assured loan forgiveness. Um, so those are another opportunities for losing individuals in the pipeline um, into pathology even because we don't have those assured uh, loan forgiveness programs. You know, I still have well over two hundred thousand dollars in medical education debt. And I, I chose to go to Morehouse because tuition was cheaper actually than my undergrad college. And if I would have gone to a different medical school, I would probably have
0: significant. Half a million dollars? Yeah, seriously, half a yeah. million dollars. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Um, yeah. And it's, I think that's another thing. I mean, when you think about, you know, when you're looking, when you're, you know, when we talk about bias in the residency selection process, um, we have to be really careful when we're looking at the schools that individuals are coming from because some students are coming from, disadvantaged backgrounds and might be quite strategic in the schools that they choose to go to um, mm-hmm. for various reasons, be, you know, whether it be for cost and potential debt or family, um, various reasons. So um, yeah. things to all be, things to all consider when you think about the pipeline um, and how we can lose individuals uh, or, you know, potentially inadvertently exclude individuals because they had a different pathway than what we think it should look like.
0: Yeah, without even realizing we think it. And then you think about the serendipity of that, you know, encounter you had with Dr. Patillo, um, and how if you hadn't had that conversation, you know, and yeah. connected with Dr. Kerman, and um, how, as someone who is now in a place where you can offer that opportunity to other people, I, you know, both of us, I've thought about. You know, how am I going to know when someone needs help, and how am I going to be that person who can reach out to someone? Yeah, Um, it's it's hard, and it's it's um, you know, it's and the hard thing is that in that space that you were in as a medical student, and even before that, you didn't even know who to ask for help. You know, you didn't even know what the options were. Part of the way, and that's the hardest part for me. It's not. There are plenty of people who don't come from a background where you know mom or dad's a doctor, so they know what it's supposed to look like. So, um, it's just something I'm always asking myself at least. Um, let's see. So I, uh, I believe that this segues nicely into the next question that underrepresented groups can have trouble choosing a career where they don't see people like themselves in the career, which is sort of a self-perpetuating cycle of people not choosing a career. Right. Um, can you tell, um, can you talk about the demographics of those on faculty and in leadership positions in medicine, and then specifically in pathology, if you have that data?
1: Yeah. So I don't. I don't have the exact numbers off the top of my head, but um,
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah, we, no trends. Yeah, the exact Just, numbers we don't. Yeah. <laughs> it's not. Yeah. Um, yeah. The underrepresentation increases as you progress in your career. So, okay. you know, certainly UIM students are underrepresented um, at the medical student level. When you think about, you know, when you think about the number of black. Uh, or Af- Black uh, medical school graduates were at about um, 6.2%. And that encompasses everyone. So, you know, when you look at the statistics on, you know, quote, Black, that's a very rich term. We're mm. thinking about not only African-Americans, but Afro-Caribbeans, mm. um, truly African, you know, African from, you know, Nigeria or mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, Ghana, whatever, an African country. Um, so, So it's more complex than um, what you're seeing on face value as 6.2% black, when you actually look at the data more in, in, you know, granularly, you're about 40, 44% of those are actually are African American, um, and then of that, uh, most of those are going to be women. So when you're thinking about you know where we're starting at, we're talking about mostly females, um, fewer of which are African American, um, and then when you progress forward we're having attrition at every step of the way.
0: Mm-hmm. Um mm-hmm.
1: so fewer residents, fewer fellows, and then when you get into academics and at faculty ranks, um there's even more significant attrition. So for um uh, for for blacks in pathology, um you know, we're significantly underrepresented. Um and that underrepresentation increases significantly
0: uh, as you Go on to assistant and associate, and yeah, yeah. yeah.
1: And then when you're thinking about actual departmental leadership, um, we're talking about you know less than five um, Mm. across the board, and that includes um, you know both basic science and clinical um, pathology departments. So the the gender, racial, ethnic disparities are really profound at the leadership levels. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so when you think about that pipeline again, it doesn't terminate at just, you know, getting someone into residency. It terminates with getting that individual to their long-term, you know, career goals. And if that is becoming a, you know, full professor and department chair, um, those challenges that that UAM individual can face on that pathway to becoming a department chair can become even more significant. Um, Mm -hmm. You have, you know, implicit bias when you're thinking about you know, things that can happen at the medical school and residency stages. And and once you get higher up, you might face some overt, explicit bias. um, Because you're talking about a very different um, group at that point. Uh, In
0: 2019, you published a paper titled The Race Toward Diversity, Inclusion, and Equity in Pathology, The Johns Hopkins Experience, outlining a program that is implemented to increase representation from groups underrepresented in medicine in pathology. Can you tell us about the program, how it came about, and what you all have been able to achieve?
1: Yeah, so I so we published that paper with um, it was, it was certainly a team effort. So, Dr. Alicia mm-hmm. Ware um, has been instrumental in the success of the program. And along the way, we've had a lot of support from not only our department chair, Dr. Ralph Ruban, but also. Dr. Juan Troncoso, um, who is the chair of our uh, pathology diversity committee here at Hopkins, um, and then Dr. Lissandra Voltaggio, uh, Dr. Annika Winden, and, and then uh, Dr. Laura Wake, Ms. Sherry Reed, who's, a, who's been administrative support. Um, but yeah, so the, so the program was started um, back in, goodness, um, I believe 2013
0: by Dr. Juan Tricoso. I think Wander-Coso. it said 2013, yeah, so you so, were a resident then? So I,
1: right? so I was not involved at that time. So Dr. Juan Tricoso yeah. started the program in 2013 um, mm-hmm. and they had one student rotate um, who I think ultimately went into internal medicine. Um, I became involved in 2016 after having conversations with the uh, diversity committee about ways that we can um, expand our outreach um, to our you know broader immediate community, but then also to other, um, to the, you know, to the broader undergraduate medical education community. um, community. Um, And I share that I went to Morehouse and that, you know, Morehouse is quite unique in that uh, we have a phenomenal uh, faculty that teaches pathology, but um, the we have some adjunct, or not, I guess they were adjunct at that time. I think they're they're formally on faculty now. But um, at the time, the pathologists that were involved were primarily forensic pathologists, and we didn't, have, and they were, they were, they were affiliated with you know the Fulton County Medical Examiner's Office or, or mm-hmm. the G- Georgia Bureau of Investigation. So we we at Morehouse did not have a clinical um, pathology service. Um, so it was challenging, you know, even though we had a phenomenal pathology curriculum. Which was, you know, slide-based and, you know, really engaging. Um, we didn't have the opportunity to um, directly see how pathology services are run and get that direct experience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I shared my experience, and they said, and you know, they they said, well, why don't we just go back and give a presentation? Um, so we went back and um, met with uh, the, the first and second year medical students and kind of shared what we did in pathology and shared that we had this rotation. Um, and the number of students who rotated increased from one um, between 2013 and 2016 to now we're at 20 rotators total. Uh, mm. So the success of the rotation has really been um due to these outreach efforts where we go to um, either historically black medical schools, Howard, Meharry, Morehouse, or groups that um, work with students that are underrepresented in medicine. Um, So the Student National Medical Association is the large um, medical association for um, black students. Um, At the University of Chicago, uh, they met with another group that worked predominantly with Latinx students. Um, So we targeted groups where we're going to reach a broader audience you know we certainly we're not saying let's meet with the pathology interest group because you know at your standard medical school your pathology interest group is going to be quite small and we're thinking about uam students and a pathology interest group you're going to be looking at maybe one a year if you're lucky so we targeted a we were strategic and making sure that we were reaching a broader audience one to Highlight pathology as a specialty, but then too to also emphasize that we have this resource available. Um, because again, you know, when you're talking about increasing equity and uh, the indebtedness that you know UIM students uh, have after graduating from medical school, um, you know, it's these elective rotations can be um, cross prohibitive in many instances. So it was really important that we share that this rotation is available, and if you're, and even if you're not interested in pathology, just come learn about what we do. Um, mm-hmm. And it'll help you in your future clinical practice no matter what it ends up going into um yes i have to say we've had nine match into pathology which i think is pretty great considering you know
0: mm-hmm.
1: Are any of them at johns hopkins so yeah so we're excited that one matched in this year um dr um th- well i guess she's yeah she's a phd so dr lorena Marcano, um she'll be joining us in a couple of weeks um she actually is graduating from the university of puerto rico and she did her phd um at the same time i Goodness, I believe it's Baylor. Um, oh, don't misquote me. I think that might be wrong. Um,
0: yeah. But yes, she will be joining us. Um, that's great. Uh, ah, so you get yeah. to see the sort of uh, the tangible yes uh, results. That's that's great. Um, so, uh, I know that uh, everything's on hold right now due to COVID nineteen, although. Uh, Dr. Fauci has been coming out lately and talking about how he's hopeful about the vaccine program. So I've allowed myself to be hopeful for the first time in a long time. So I'm crossing my fingers and toes. But um, what are your plans going forward Um, for this program? Not only um, I know you talked about bringing it on to a virtual platform and perhaps expanding access to those who can't travel due to cost or family situations. But also, do you think that this is something you could um, I know you have a lot of support at Hopkins. Do you think that, you know, people like me could implement this where, where I am in academics? Is this something you could almost make like a handbook
1: for? Oh, yeah. So, so first, so first um, I think, you know, COVID-19 has definitely been a tragedy. Um, and, but I think the silver lining is that we're seeing that we can use technology in ways that we hadn't considered before. Mm -hmm. Um, and so moving forward, I mean, I think right at this time, you know, unfortunately a lot of medical schools are being really restrictive because, you know, you're looking at students that are paying tuition and you have to provide them a quality medical education. And so, you know, given that it's really tough to transition learning to an online format, I think there's a lot of, uh, bandwidth issue. So I think at this time, you know, we, we can't, I you know this time, you know, we can't have it open to the, to the broader community, but I think moving forward, you know, once things have settled and, mm-hmm. um, you know, we've certainly gotten used to um, whatever the future might look like, um, I think opening this up for students outside of Hopkins in the virtual format will be quite easy. Um, mm-hmm. In terms of, you know, how other institutions can create similar programs, um, I think that's quite easy. And actually, what, we, what we've done is not novel at all. Um, other medical specialties there, there's, there are other programs that have, um, that are, that have much longer histories. Um, one of mm-hmm. them is the Nth dimensions. Um, it begins with an N, it's an N, N, T H, <laughs> Nth dimension. Mm-hmm. So, um, so they've been around since I was a medical student and they, the group was started by, um, Dr. Bonnie Simpson and she was an orthopedic surgeon and I believe she had to step out of clinical practice. Um. And as you can imagine, orthopedic surgery uh, is, is less diverse than pathology is um, in all yeah. forms. So what yes. she did is uh, created this um, mentorship program and elective rotation for UAM students and women uh, as a pipeline program into um, orthopedic surgery. And her program has been so successful. Again, this is you know dating back to, I guess, Earlier than 2013, um, but they've ex- it's been so successful that they've expanded to other procedural based specialties, um, including um, procedural and non procedural based specialties, including radiology um, and dermatology. Um, here at Hopkins, we have another rotation um, for UIM students in otolaryngology. So I think that what we've done is not novel in um, these diversity inclusion efforts and equity efforts. Um, and I think at the broader institution level, um, there should be support from your diversity, inclusion and equity um, you know, office or group um, to provide funding for these uh, elective rotations, which really isn't that expensive, all things considered. I mean, for us at Hopkins, um, room and board is about 1600 a month. Um, mm-hmm. And then you know, and the students come rotate for, rotate, rotate for us with a month. So the only other variable is travel Um, So it really isn't that expensive when you're thinking about um, the investment and the potential returns. Um, Yeah,
0: definitely.
1: So it's not not a difficult argument to make. So a lot of institutions have had these programs much longer than we have had ours and in other specialties as well. Um, I believe Harvard has another one. UPenn has another one that's for all medical specialties, not just pathology. I think ours is um, the first pathology-specific program, um, Mm -hmm. but certainly not the first at all. And I think there's a lot of institution uh, level support for these initiatives because they're so important for increasing equity.
0: Yes. Um, One of the topics that's been on my mind of late is mentorship. Mm -hmm. Um, I think, like I said about, you know, acknowledging it's, it's such a such a catchphrase now, like acknowledging your privilege, but I don't think I'd be where I am without certain people along the way who either picked me up when I fell down, you know, metaphorically or who saw my enthusiasm and sort of pointed me in a correct direction. Not to say that I didn't go in a lot of wrong directions um, and do a lot of, you know, foolish or silly things, but it's no coincidence that I ended up in GYN and cytopathology. (laughs) Many of my favorite um, professors uh, starting back from you know medical school, the OBGYNs I knew, the pathologists I knew in residency, the pathologists who I sort of glommed onto, who I was you know similar in style to, and who seemed like just really great um, diagnosticians were GYN and cyto-focused. Um, it seems that your program is filling a void and connecting mentees with mentors. Mm-hmm. Do you have a mentor in your life who helped you arrive where you are? And then also, um, if you want to talk about whether or not you keep in touch with the people who've come through this program that you started Mm -hmm. as you're now a mentor yourself?
1: Yeah, so I think Dr. Ashley Chamina Matthews here has been instrumental um, in my success and um, has been a mentor in, you know, multiple spaces. You know, we think about mentorship. It's not just career mentorship. It's, you know, life mentorship and um, she certainly has been uh, mentor in that regard as well. I think the other side of mentorship is having, you know, someone be your champion and someone who is going to, um, you know, put your name out there. So I, I appreciate that Dr. Ralph Ruban has been uh, a champion for me in this space as well, I and mean, putting my name forward um, for opportunities. I mean, I think that's the other unspoken part about, you know, diversity, inclusion, and equity is that, you know, it's one thing to have a mentor. Um, but when you talk about UIM individuals, it's incredibly challenging to find someone to be a champion for you. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's the other part of the conversation. Um, but certainly, Dr. Ashish Shemina-Matthews has been my um, mentor in multiple spaces, and Dr. Ruban um, as a career champion, um, yeah. putting my name out there for things. In terms of um, keeping in touch with students with the rotation, um, absolutely um we keep in touch with them just to figure out you know where they what they're up to um Mm -hmm. and you know it's it's, and it's just as they check in as needed um you know to see how things are going you know one of them we were thrilled uh you know might be considering um looking for looking at our program years later for a neuropathology fellowship so it was really wonderful to hear from her um Mm -hmm. that she's interested um and again you know obviously dr Uh, marcano we're thrilled that she's matched with us and um she rotated with us last year. So, um, I, I, assume that we'll, you know, build a stronger relationship moving forward. Um,
0: yeah, it's, it's a really great feeling when, like, when I see you, oh. I, I know, I know I play like this itsy bitsy role and in, in your life story, but just like, I, I still think of you at, you know, the two of us wandering around, um, sort of <laughs> figuring things out and you were just so great. And I could tell you were going to be so great. And now you're like, great. And it's just, it, it's, it's like makes my chest feel like it's going to, no, it's it such be, a great feeling. It
1: was both you and, um, Dr. Maniar, um, oh, that made man. me, you know, I think if I hadn't worked with you ladies that I would have had a different experience. Um, oh. you know, certainly it made me realize that, um, you know, pathology looks very different than, you know, how it could be, how, you know, how it's often perceived by medical students. Um, yes and uh you know and also working with dr vang i mean all you know the whole guide path team here at that time um was really yeah. instrumental in making kind of we're in a ec- we're an eclectic <laughs> bunch but we're nice people <laughs> no, seriously i mean it's just been yeah it, it, it yeah. was it was really wonderful and I mean you know the, i guess to reassure me that i was making the right decision um yeah so it was surgery was a close call at that point
0: um oh. So oh man we pulled you back from the brink i'm just kidding surgeons are lovely people i love surgeons yeah okay um Yeah. So this has been a great discussion. I, I really appreciate you coming on. I know you're very busy. Everyone's upside down now with, um, home life and work life sort of becoming, uh, less separated and more, um, Sort of shaken up together. Uh, so I thank you for joining me. Um, I'm always encouraged when I see when I identify a problem as big as the one we've talked about today, and I think, how in the world is it going to get better? And then when I find somebody like you who's like already working on it, it's like, oh, okay, it's, it's like it's that's okay. People are doing this, and good people are working on it. So, um, would you like to offer any closing words today?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think um, I think I think the biggest take home point. Or the thing that I try to stress is that, you know, I think we all, we as pathologists can do a lot um, in multiple spaces, I, you know, to increase diversity and inclusion within, with, within our uh, actual workforce, um, but then also to reduce health disparities and increase health equity. Um, for our patient population that, you know, again, it's, you know, it's tough for us to think of because we don't actually see them. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, we're seeing the downstream effects, but we're not having those conversations, those difficult conversations with our patients where they're saying, you know, I can't afford to get my medication or I don't have, I don't have a car, so I can't go to a drive-through uh, COVID testing checkpoint. Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So all these different things, I mean, I think there are opportunities for us for as, as pathologists to get involved and, you know, um, I just, you know, want to make sure that everyone is, uh, you know, thinking of how they can use their positions to um, implement real change. And again, you know, in in the current things that are going in, with today's current events and ongoing events, and um, you know, I just challenge everyone to keep the momentum moving forward and not let this be, you know, another instance where, you know, for a month there's I mean, an incredible response and then a month later. Um, the conversation kind of fizzles out and nothing actually happens.
0: Yeah, that's a challenge. I think everyone can look in the mirror and accept this. Um, we have to keep keep trying every single day. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, thank you so much for joining me, Dr. Marissa White. It has been a pleasure. This has been Deeper Levels. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And a special thank you, because I always forget to thank him, to my friend Matthew C. Plack, who composed my theme music like I'm a real person, and to my husband, who patches in it at the beginning and end, making it sound like this is a professional operation, which whispers, it is not. Anyway, <laughs> thank you for joining me, Marissa, and everyone stay safe out there, and will talk soon.